All right, I think we're I think we're good to go. I trust enjoy this nice new classroom. So this is what they call on our multi-purpose room, I guess. So if you hear that mentioned another time, a good place to, to gather. And so it gives a little more room here. Not that we needed it, but that way they get to get the other place set up for uh, what's going on for the rest of the week. So we're going to pick up where we left off, of course, and kind of bring us up to speed here. And we're going to be discussing some of the weeds and some of the questions today about missions versus ministry, sending someone versus supporting someone, parachurch organizations versus paramissional organizations. So because we're talking about the sent nature and we're talking about who's responsible for sending, we're going to hit some of those specific questions and get a little bit in the weeds of that today. We've been walking through this, and in the first chapter, uh, I think most of you have been here, but in the first chapter, just walking through the exclusive nature of God and His revelation, passing that revelation on to the church. And then, as we see in the second chapter, we saw just the responsibility of the church to guard truth, to um, preserve truth, the church being the pillar of truth, and then the responsibility of proclaiming truth. Last time we talked about, two, I think two Sundays ago, about the missions is the proclamation of truth, and, and church growth comes from the proclamation of the gospel. So we walk through that, and the point is laying this foundation as we keep on building this. We walk into a place where we're going to get in some of the very, maybe some of the very specifics of, well, who is a missionary and who do you send? Well, all those things are predicated upon the idea of what the responsibility of the church is in the matter. And as you lay that foundation, you'll, you'll realize as we come to these different more more gray area questions we need questions we can reinterpret those or understand those in light of the truth of the gospel in light of the truth of the god's word and in light of the truth of what the church's responsibility is in the matter way in the beginning we talked about the question of missions is 90 percent of the time missions we walk into it backwards we walk into the emotional question and we try to back into truth so we've labored in in five weeks now and trying to lay that right foundation so that when we come to gray area decisions we walk back into it. We try to stand on the right biblical principles, and realizing that you know, there's the church has been given this task and this responsibility. How does that work, and how the how's the outworking of that uh, through through our even our ministry here? It'll help you understand not only as a church how we're going to process missions, how do we invest in missions, how do we support missions. Also, you as a individual, if you if you desire to serve in that capacity, and Brian, and I was just talking the other day, you know we mobilizing the next generation to serve, to, to be willing to go and to serve uh, in, in cross-cultural settings or to go and serve as missionaries. We continually need to see uh, people surrender their lives to that. So maybe you're in that position, and you'll be able to, to glean from this as well. In page 32, so that we left off in page page 34 last time, but I want to back up just to page 32. We're talking about the Great Commission mandate from Matthew 28. Basically, we set the foundation that the task of the Great Commission is going, baptizing, teaching, making disciples. But we established last time that the the thrust, the command, is making disciples. The three other uh, adverbial supports that are there are as you go, as you baptize, and as you teach, make disciples. So we're going to, inter- we're going to process missions. We're going to understand missions in light of the uh, ultimate objective of missions, which is to make disciples. And that might seem very, very clear, very simple, until you walk down to the weeds of missions and you see what is being done in missions and asking that question, well, how does this fulfill 
the Great Commission, how does this fulfill the need to make disciples and how do we do that? We talked about in uh, page 32, we're going to break down those four areas. As you go, as you baptize, as you teach, and as you, and, and making disciples, those are the four areas. We start out with the first one. The first one's important because you have to understand as you go, we talked about page 33, being truth bearers. You know, uh, we talked about... Th- uh, top of page 33, the church is not first and foremost sending people. It's above all sending truth. You've heard Pastor mention this from the pulpit before. We're sending truth overseas, which is, means also the uh, importance of training people, preparing them. Uh, it's not just a pat on the back and uh, goodwill and good intentions and bless God go. It's you're training them. Whenever we land on the mission field, you know you have to, you have to answer. You become the one person that can answer or has to answer all these questions. Now, here, we could also go back, to, we send everybody to Mark. If it's a hard question, go talk to Mark. You know, if it's a deep theological question, go talk to Pastor. You know, I got, you can always deflect. When you're honest, that's how you do it. But there, when you're on the field, you're, there's no person to deflect to. You've got to be equipped to answer these questions about, well, what, what about these ministry roles? What about the, the, the gift teams? What about uh, then you have a, a Mormon knocking on your door? You have a, t- a Jehovah's Witness knocking on your door. You have, you have all these things that you're dealing with. You're, you're the person that is equipped. And, the whole, and we brought this attention, we've, we've brought this to light already uh, in front of our congregation, just the importance of training people to go that are going to be equipped to answer these questions. Now, there's a question, what capacity you go, obviously. Uh, we mentioned one, one principle is that if you're going to go and serve in the capacity of an elder, then you need to be trained as an elder. You need to be equipped as an elder. You need to be a qualified elder if you're going to serve in the capacity of, of an elder. Not everyone who serves overseas or serves in missional capacities have to fulfill the role of an elder, but if you fulfill that role, then you should be equipped, equipped to do so. So we, don't, we send people that should be uh, qualified to do so. And unfortunately, a lot of times, we, people don't think that deeply about it. They see goodwill, they see good intentions, and they're excited about someone just willing to go. And a lot of times, our default is kind of like, well, I wouldn't want to go, but you want to go, that's good enough. Well, no, it's not good enough. You know, just because you have someone willing to drink yak milk or uh, uh, monkey brains or whatever it is doesn't just make them, oh, good, you go because I don't want to do that. No, it's much more than that uh, that requires uh, proper consideration. So... Page 34, last time we left on this, on, on this point. First, why do we sin? We talked about the sentence of Christ. We talked about even going through the on top of page 34. Uh, we see constantly in the, book of, in the Gospel of John, we see this throughout the, the Gospels either way, right, where Christ is saying that he was sent by the Father, sent by the Father. And then in John 20, 21, he goes, As the Father has sent me, even so am I sending you. So one of the author argues that with this call comes the call to be imitators of Christ and as a church to be tied to his purpose to seek and save the lost. So the, he, he gives us now this mission and this purpose, gives it to his church. As the Father sent him, now he's sending us on, and of course he gives us his spirit to equip us and to empower us as we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So I put down, we, we, talked, we left this as one thought last time, the importance of of going as messengers of Christ, as carries as proclamation of truth, as carrying the truth, and I want to come back on that and end with that, and then go back to who is sent on, on mid page thirty four here. I put down confusion. Remember, we mentioned this last time. Confusion emanates from those who go with humanitarian aid, 
and are received on the basis of what they have to offer. A messenger of Christ, on the other hand, will be received on the basis of how people view Christ. In other words, we talked about last time the confusion in missions is if you go and lead with the idea of uh, humanitarian aid, you'll be received on the basis of what you had to offer. And if you quit offering that, then you're going to be accepted or not accepted based on that. But if you come with the gospel, you'll be received and accepted on the basis of Christ. And our mission and our purpose is to be imitators of Christ, and we go with that message to – and even though, of course, there's a place and time for helping people and meeting them in their place, meeting them in their place of need, nevertheless, uh, we're there to, as messengers of Christ – and as we proclaim truth, we're received on the basis. So when, I, when we went to the ministry and we go to the field, if you proclaim Christ and they hate you, it's because of their view of Christ. Now, if I, if I go there and handle, if I hand them goodies, then they want those goodies, or I help, I help fund a, a, a this project, or I help feed this or that, then yes, you might be received on the basis of that. But boy, if you bring the gospel, you want them to receive or reject you on the basis of Christ. And that eliminates a lot of confusion around the idea of, of why you're there and how you're received. So, number four, picking up where we left off last time, who is sent? Who do you send? And we're going to tackle the question that uh, we've been talking about but haven't really laid a foundation for is, is everyone a missionary? If not, how do you uh, deal with that? Then how do you deal with the call, the missionary call? What does it mean to be called to missions? And then how do we interpret that as well? So who is sent? Bottom of page 34, it says, The Great Commission has been given for all disciples to follow, but that does not discount the need for specific individuals to be sent to all nations. Missionary, top page 35, missionary is a term which finds its linguistic roots in the idea of being sent. So in the term of missionary term that we're being used, yes, it's the idea of being sent. More specifically, the word missionary comes from the Latin Missionem, meaning act of sending, or mitere, meaning to send. So the, there's already built into the idea of missionary is being sent. Now, we're going to walk to our important question, right? Well, who's sent? And the critical piece is going to be, well, who sends? Because if you answer that question, who sends, that, that all of a sudden puts a governor to the entire mission project. If you understand who sends, and we've already established why the church can only be the one fit to meet that role, uh, but we'll, we'll feed that, we'll discuss that in just a moment. So the term, the second point brought out here is that though there is not a direct New Testament Greek equivalent, the noun apostolos from which the word apostle comes from is derived from the word to send off on a, on a commission. A distinction needs to be made between the office of apostle and the apostles of the church. Why, why is it important there, there can be confusion around the term apostle. Why is it important to distinguish between the office of the apostle or the apostles of the church? Why is that distinction important? Because of the authority that they carry for one. The, the, the apostles were given authority to, to preach the gospel, to establish the churches, whereas the other, I'll call them lesser apostles of the church, such as Barnabas, who is in Acts called an apostle. He's, he's an apostle of the church of Antioch, and he was sent so uh, you're, right, for so a you, purpose uh, that they had given them. 
So some of the confusion from the term apostle comes from people viewing the missionary as an apostle. Well, yes, but not an apostle as in the office of an apostle, but the confusion comes from, therefore, if a missionary is an apostle, then he has his authority is directly from God, and he no longer submits to any other church authority. So he's, he's an apostle, meaning he functions independently of any other structure, and he has a, uh, uh, a mission that is direct from God. So sometimes there's confusion over an apostle being a messenger versus an apostle uh, as an office, uh, per se. Interesting to see in Scripture, you mentioned Barnabas. I put down here in 2 Corinthians 8.23, the term apostle was used to describe those who served as messengers of the church. We see several, uh, several others in Scripture that are called apostles, or sometimes the, ter- the term messenger is, al- is also uh, included in the text. Sometimes Barnabas in Acts 14, Epaphroditus in uh, chapter 2, verse 25, and Andronicus and Junius, Romans 16, James, the brother of Jesus, and Galatians 1. So there are terms in Scripture that, one, either the term apostle is used beyond the 12 apostles, beyond the title of apostle, or the term messenger of the church is used to describe those who are sent from the church as messengers of the church. So John uh, Flett points to the fact that both apostles and apostles, small a, share in the common task of sharing the gospel and both labor to grow the church. In making disciples, both the 12 and the missionaries who followed have the common goal of building the community of believers. So there's commonality in that uh, they both have the task of growing the church and both have the task of, of laboring to grow the church. But a missionary is first and foremost one who is a messenger of the church. He is sent by the church. So is everyone a missionary? Point five here that's brought out. I think few would argue that in a broad sense of the term that's often used, we often use the term in a very broad sense, should we all be missionaries? Well, if we're using the term to say, should we all proclaim the gospel? Of course, we would all agree that we're all to proclaim the gospel. If we're using the term to say, should we all be, um, have, have a desire for, to be salt and light in the world? Yes, of course. But if we're, deci- if we're saying that, um, it'd be count- I put down here simply that it'd be counterproductive to claim that all believers are missionaries because by doing so, you're actually uh, negating those who are sent specifically as messengers of the church to fulfill a specific task. So, yes, I could say broadly here we're all called to be missionaries. And sometimes you'll hear missionaries say that, and they say that to kind of mobilize people to, get to share the gospel. They say that to kind of evangelize in a broad sense. Hey, we should all be missionaries. And in that sense of the term, we should all share the gospel, absolutely. But... If we're going to, if the church is going to, if Timothy's going to take Michael and we're going to send Michael, he's going to be a messenger of the church. He's going to be a missionary of the church, sent by the church with a purpose, with a mission, vetted and affirmed by the body of Christ, and with a specific task at hand. Um, top of page, I'm working on some of these quotes up here, top of page, um, page 36. Gordon writes it, Gordon puts it this way. He says, all Christians are to be missionary-minded in obedience to the Great Commission, but not all Christians can be missionaries in the proper biblical sense of the word. So we're doing a disservice to understanding. We're bringing confusion to the topic by simply saying everyone is, is a missionary. No, you're a missionary if you meet the missionary qualifications. You're sent by a body to fulfill a purpose, to fulfill a mission that has been given to you by that, that congregation and that church. So, 
if everyone's not called to be a missionary, then who is called? And if being a missionary begins with being called, then I think we use that term, and we need to understand what does it mean to be called, called to missions. Now, I put down here two examples in page 36 that speak to that. For some, the moment an individual presents himself to a church and says, I feel called to be a missionary, the church is expected to affirm and support such a call. In other words, some would say, well, that's an individual call. God's, God's laid hands on them. God's called them. So the church's responsibility is that if you come, if you come to my book and say, hey, I, I feel called to be a missionary, our task as a church is to affirm that call. Well, to affirm, as in to test it, yes, but to affirm simply in, 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 as in to, um, to lay hands on him and send him without testing or affirming his giftings, no. Um, the idea that in the very individual society that we live in, oftentimes the idea is, well, I've got this calling, and they, I've had many people come to me and they say, well, I've got, a, I've got a calling, and all they want from us is to, to bless them, maybe financially support them, but not question their calling because we're not in a position to question their calling from God, and that's not the role the, the church has been, has been given. For others, I put down another example, for others, the idea of a call is somewhat of a mystical experience, Right? Herbert Cain calls this that some people claim the missionary should have a Macedonian call, like Paul did in Acts chapter 16, compromised or comprised of visions, dreams, voices. Some suggest Christians should seek out such experiences and then wait on, and wait on the Lord for such experiences. So you, you have a certain people that, one, um, have a, feel like they have an individual call and want the church to affirm that call. Others have a mystical experience that they are waiting for, they have, a, they have a dream, they have a vision, they have a sense of, of uh, God pressing them on something, and they, they want to respond to that. Uh, one of the authors said that these mysterious calls should not be expected to be normative as there are more common ways that God calls individuals into missions. I don't want to try to define how God moves in someone's life and someone's heart. What you often hear is someone goes on a short-term missions trip and they, they're moved by something and they come back and they feel compelled to go back. There's nothing wrong with that from the point of view that you, know, you see the need and you as a believer, you want to meet that need. I think that's very commendable. I've seen many people go on, on short-term trips. They go teach somewhere. They go visualize something. They come back and they want to go back to that place. Well, there's nothing wrong with that from the point of view of, man, I want to serve. There's a great need. I feel like maybe I could use my needs there, my giftings there. All that is fine if it's all that is submitted to the, to the proper counsel and the proper direction and allow elders and others to speak into your life about it. He said there's more common ways individuals are called into missions. One way he calls here, and this is Borthwick that calls it this way, he says one is what he calls the commission call where the spirit leads church elders to commission an individual. Acts 13 is probably the most basic example of that. In other words, they, the, the, the commission calls where a church says, you know, we have this need over here. We feel like, well, this person over here, they're, they're very qualified to do that. We will approach that person. Would you consider this? Most of the time, that person's already serving one capacity or another. They want to be in ministry. They've got teaching abilities. They've got, they want to serve. And the churches approach them and say, hey, would you be, would you be willing to consider this? Uh, Tim O'Shea, a very qualified uh, teacher, we approached him about going to Malawi for two years. Uh, he considered other areas of ministry, and we saw a need there. We came to him and said, would you consider this? We prayed with him and got behind them, and, and for two years they served in that capacity, and God used them greatly in, in that ministry. So there's that, that sense where the church can see a need and see someone in their midst that's qualified to meet that need and approach them and say, here's something I would like you to consider and, and together work towards that kind of project. 
Another calling is what he calls here the common sense, where God works in minds, knowledge, and common sense. You one example here in Acts 15, uh, where it says, Acts 15, 22, the apostles, the elders, and the whole church chose men from among them, and they sent them to Antioch because it seemed good. Simply saying that common sense means not that you're being... Uh, fleshly or carnal in your interpretation of things, but God's given you the ability to see a need, to uh, given given us wisdom, given us discernment, and uh, when a need presents itself and we're able to meet that need, uh, or you as an individual want to meet a specific need, that God gives us um, direction and ability to, to acknowledge that and, and respond to that. So, Thomas Hill, on the back, on the end of your page 36, here are, some, here are some principles that he, he gives for someone that desires to, to serve in ministry. Here are the things that we should put before someone. One, it doesn't bypass intellectual practices, which means it doesn't bypass common sense. It uh, doesn't bypass uh, uh, you know, evaluating the situation. You might want to, to serve in one capacity or another, and just, there's no physical way that's going to happen. Uh, so it doesn't bypass intellectual practices. Uh, applying biblical principles, calculating the cost, weighing priorities, capacities, limitations. So the author here uses these and more to lead an individual to see clearly what is right and good to decide and do in, in each situation, which means whenever we're – the calling is one where you come and you come together with the church, you evaluate the need, the church together prayerfully considers the need, and, uh, and God leads in a providential way in that way. It's not a mystical calling over here where it's an independent uh, decision made on the part of one person, uh, but it's using all these biblical principles to support. And God, God gives us wisdom and discernment in, in these matters. Uh, I put down top page 37. It says, more often than not, problems come from not humbly seeking wisdom. Problems come from ignoring God-given authority. Problems come from impatience, and problems come from various issues of the heart, pride, affirmation, man-pleaser, etc. So a lot of times the problems we have in, in, as it pertains to, to being called and who's called and how to answer a call is to be able to flesh out all these heart issues that um, surface and that present themselves in, in the heart of someone and as they're prepared, as we prepare them or prepare them for ministry. So... I'll put down, instead of waiting for a clear, mysterious direction that somehow God expects man to find, the key is to be faithful in what God has called one to do today, and in doing so, God providentially opens opportunities and provides affirming experiences as believers are assured that he works things for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. Confident that God's desire for the believer to know his will is exponentially greater than the Christian's desire to know God. So first of all, we are called to live out truth, and to uh, do it, in, in other words, if we're going to be, if you have a desire to serve a ministry and desire to be, and you feel a desire to be in full-time ministry and called to ministry, the first thing we should be observing is what? Is faithfulness in ministry today. Where are you serving? Whose lives are you pouring into? What, what difference are you making in someone's life today? How are you preparing yourself? How are you uh, growing in knowledge and truth? Who's, whose lives are you discipling? Whose lives are you pouring into? Uh, you don't just... Um, God's desire is faithfulness to um, 
to, to him today, and those are the people that you're going to be able to, to, to lean on and see how God's affirming their giftings already in, in the church. The definition of calling, I put on page 37, is this. It says, call is an inner desire given by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God and confirmed by the community of Christ. A call is an inner desire given by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God and confirmed by the community of Christ. Now, there's some pretty strong statements that we see here in just a moment. I want you to comment on and get your feedback about the call. Um, three, three or four ingredients that you see a couple of authors give us some ingredients. One is the work of the Holy Spirit. There's desire. Two is the word of the Lord, biblical principles. What, what, do we mean, what do we mean by biblical principles? In other words, what does biblical principles have to do with the idea of calling? Well, one would be if you fit the moral temperament to being in that office, which is what First Timothy and Titus are all about. Uh, you know, both of them, they mention uh, the gift of teaching, I think, in, in the one passage it says being apt to teach. And that's all it says about teaching. All the rest of the qualifications are moral. What's their, right. Is their life uh, reflecting uh, uh, godliness to such a way that they would be a pattern to other believers? Well, the work of the Holy Spirit is going to manifest in desires of your heart. And as you seek the Lord and desire to please Him, desire to serve Him, He'll give you desires of your heart. No, no church is going to come alongside and say, I really want you to do this. You're like, man, I just, no, I just really don't see myself doing that. He's going to bring your hearts together and, and uh, with the elders and, and work uh, in congruently with that. So the Holy Spirit puts that inner desire to the word of the Lord, which is biblical principle, which means you can't have a desire for something that's unbiblical. You wouldn't be able to have a desire if you don't meet certain qualifications even as an elder because you're either there's sin in your life, there's things that are unconfessed or there's things that haven't dealt with, or you desire a role, uh, you desire a role that is not a biblical role for, for a woman or for other capacities, then you can't, you, don't, you can't have a super call beyond the biblical text. You can't have desires that are extra biblical and, and think that someone God's behind those. You can't take a, a desire and, and, and violate other biblical principles and think that somehow God is, at the, is the author of those. And so you have to have not only the right desires that are driven by the Spirit, but then having biblical principles that surround them, and then the work of the church, which is elder shepherding in the process. I do think there's a lot of confusion over the role of elders when it comes to this. I think many people, when you don't go to someone and ask for advice, why is that? Why do you usually not go to someone and ask for advice? You don't want it. <laughs> you don't want it. Why don't you want it? Because you don't want them to disagree with you. I mean, you have a heart's desire. You think, man, I really want this. And I'm afraid if I go talk to the elders or submit to somebody else in authority, they're going to they're gonna throw cold water on this. And that's, I, I, I don't want that. And in reality, you should embrace that. But there's two things about that. One, it's a misunderstanding of really the role of elders. The elders are going to come alongside you and prayerfully and carefully consider how to give you biblical direction for what you're doing. We're not, it's not like a board of a thumbs up and thumbs down and, a, you know, do we throw them out, do we keep them? I mean, it's, it's really, we, first of all, elders feel the weight 
of, of the counsel they're going to give. And they're going to do it based on what they see affirmed or not affirmed in their lives. They might say you need better preparation or better training. Give one example the the bakers, when they were here recently, one of the things that we, we met with them and talked and other men that were there at the breakfast time, we gave them advice based on what? Well, based on some of the training that we felt like he needed. He said, you know, you really make, you need to make language training a priority. So we went back, discussed with his pastor, talked to Shane last, last week about it, and they, they got money set aside for, for his language training. And there's another area we felt like, hey, maybe you need in-house training for what it would, what it would be like working in Kenya. So we're lining that up, the funds aside for that. In other words, it's, not, it's helping and equipping them for the task that is set before them and affirming the task. Now, if, if a person, for our responsibility as elders is going to be to what? To, to also discern uh, their, their desires, what might drive those desires, and to try to uh, help them be in line with Scripture. But you, you, should embrace, you should embrace a church coming around and shepherding you in your thought process about my, this is my desire, and many times people don't do that, and that's why they don't do that because they're afraid of what the church might say, or they're afraid the church is going to slow them back, not affirm them, or or slow them down because they're impatient. You know, I'm, I'm I'm ready to go now. Well, you need another two years to mature. Two years when you're 22 sounds like an eternity. <laughs> now, when you're 54, two years is nothing. But when you're when you're 22, it seems like wow, you're holding me back forever. <laughs> I'll never get there. No, you'll get there, but you're just not ready now. And so it's amazing the safety that and the wisdom that is provided there. Youngblood uh, agrees with that. He gives the three other um, also similar suggestions. He says a calling begins with a God-given inner desire, as seen in 1 Timothy 3, with one aspiring to the office of an elder. The second includes conformity to the truth of God's word. And the third puts the call in the context of the congregation of believers who are called to test, affirm, and, and sin. Now listen, you might be, someone might be part of a small congregation that has little experience in the area of missions. But God is still, if God's placed that person in that congregation, then he can still go and seek wisdom and direction and, um, and submit themselves to the counsel of, of a pastor and an elder. Look at some of these statements that... Are pretty are pretty definitive, and I want to get your your thoughts on that. The first one comes from Michael Griffith. He says an individual can express his willingness, while others must determine his worthiness. The individual may be free to go, but only his church knows if he is really fit to go. Is that very popular to say something like that today? No, but it's true. What's your thoughts on that? An individual, an individual can express his willingness, but others must determine his worthiness. The ability to set yourself through that. I feel like if a person is willing to go, he needs to also be, or be free to go, he should also be willing to um, put himself under the church and to... Uh, accept what they they see of him. So he should be willing to uh, see if the church is, sees him as ready. So he must be putting himself under the elders and saying, here, I'm willing to go. What do you guys think? Instead of, you know, being brash and 
I'm ready to go. It doesn't matter what you think. The second statement, right? James washed. Top page 38. He states that the call, as it originates with God, is discerned, declared, and ratified by the church. Without that ratification, there is no vocation. That's pretty pretty black and white as well. I mean, the call as it originates from God is discerned, declared, and ratified by the church. Without that ratification, there is no vocation. You just meet so many that aren't in a church um, where they're learning about um, submission and obedience to elders, and so they can't understand what you're talking about. You know what I mean? There's a lack of training, and so they feel they're called. It's like you said, I'm not going to slow down. This idea that somebody's going to tell me I can't go and I know what God's telling me to do. Well, it's like an unfortunate majority of the church. So, inevitably, the response is going to be, well, what if, what if, what if I'm not in a church that will affirm it? <laughs> a lot would run and find someone who will affirm what they're doing. goes back to one of the first foundational truths we've been building on. I have to trust that the Lord knew that the church with all of its imperfections was the perfect, complete model to fulfill the Great Commission. If I don't believe that, every writer is filled with contradictions. We'll affirm, affirm, affirm the church but always leave you a back door if the church is not willing to follow you and your desires. Every single author writes that way. Every single author. The church is, yes, the church is church, but there's a back door just in case the church doesn't affirm your desire to serve as a missionary. How, how do you answer that? There's a safety for you as a missionary if you go to the elders and they affirm that. Because when you're on the field and you start to question things, you can fall back on, well, I understand I did biblically what I was supposed to, the elders confirmed this call and progress. If they look into your life and you're ready to go and say, you need to work on X or Y, there's a safety for you, a shelter there, if you will, that will keep you out of trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, if someone is in an unbiblical church, they need to find a biblical church. But an unbiblical church is not someone who doesn't affirm your desires. An unbiblical church is someone who is, is not teaching systematic through the word, who's not deferring to the word. Who's, so there might, yes, you might be in a healthy church and you need to be in a healthy church. But it's not defined by someone who affirms your desires. Uh, it's defined more by someone that you're not able to submit to because they're not submitted to the word and the word is not um, uh, central to their teaching and how they, how they uh, function as a, as a church. Put down here, the responsibility of a missionary vision falls on the church. The local congregation is the ideal testing ground for potential missionaries and it is perfectly equipped to examine one's character like, like uh, Steve was saying, one's giftings and commitment to 
to ministry. To ministry. Um, so God, I'm always amazed as you study the church, as you love the church, as you grow in a church, that the church makes no human sense. We're gathered with different personalities, different ways of approaching things, different ideas, all this, but we, we have one thing in common is obviously the Lord Jesus Christ, and we stand on his word. And, and that perfect tool God uses to fulfill his great commission. And so, yes, we could sit here and lament the shortcomings of the church, but it's a beautiful tool that God has designed for his purposes and his glory I put down a missionary, and I end this with one thought here. A missionary should have a strong sense of calling upon his life. And a missionary should have a desire to do the work of the ministry and go make disciples. However, this calling is not apart from the church, but is in submission to the God-ordained body of Christ, who in turn commissions the individual as part of a corporate calling. Who sins? Now, why is this question important? Who does ascending? Okay, so let's say you're, you, you want to be a missionary, you want to serve in that capacity, and you come before the church, and they, they love on you and say, listen, we think of this, and we're going to help you, we'll get behind you. But who sends you? Why is that, why is that, question, that question so critical? So important. Who are you going to be accountable to? Who are you going to be accountable to? Mm-hmm. Now, there's, there's a sense where this this has very practical applications down the road, right? Who sins is going to have a lot of practical applications down the road. If the church is only the one affirming and not the one sending, then who's going to steer the ship down the road? Who are they going to be accountable to? Who are they going to answer to? Who's going to give the... We talked about the, the importance of the theological barrier. We talked about drifting, missional drifting, right? We talked about that in previous chapter. If the church is not the one who sins, then... The, who gives direction and who, who helps the, the, the mission stay true to the word uh, if, not, if not the church. Everyone, and here's what you, when you read through, through mission books and mission principles, everyone affirms the church. Everyone does. I've never seen any responsible respectable mission organization not affirm the church in one way or another. But when you get down to the fine print and the little footnote at the bottom of the page, who the missionary really answers to and who really sends them, you'll be, you'll be astonished by the practices that con- completely contradict what they seemingly affirm in one place or another place. We will have mission agencies who will commission someone and send them to the field without ever verifying if the church stands behind them. And yet, they'll say that the church is the one who sins. Well, how, how, do you, how do you do that? How can a mission agency affirm someone and send them to the field and not affirm where the church stands and not defer to the church to be the ones to affirm if they're qualified and capable? A mission agency is qualified to say, yes, so do they have language skills? And it's fair for a mission agency to test someone to see if they're going to fit within their agency. That's absolutely fair. Are they going to fit within our teamwork? Are they going to fit our objectives? Are they going to be able to live in these conditions? We have a close friend who went through a new tribe's training for an entire year. After that year of training, they told our friend that you're, you're not missionary material. And that person had not gone through a church anyway, so they didn't have a separate church affirming them. They were just going through 
So yeah, that, that agency has a right to say, hey, you know, you're not fit within our structure. But to go to to where to, to go to the point where we trust the process, what happened to the church that they've trusted the process to the hands of professionals. And by you, by trusting it in the hands of professionals, you've you've taken away our God given responsibility to lay hands on someone and say, yes, we're affirming you to go. And if it fits within this agency or that agency uh, is, is a separate question, but we, we are going to lay hands and, and affirm. So who sends a missionary? The answer to this question is critical. Given that failure to answer correctly could lead to unbiblical missions, missional drifts, wasted human and physical resources, and a host of other related breakdowns. You know, in the same way that... It makes no sense for a church to hire a new pastor by having them come and preach the three best sermons. You come and preach your three best sermons, and on that, you know, alone, and he just got a personality that kind of jives with people. Yeah, we like, oh, he's great, and we're, and we're gonna, he's gonna be our new pastor and lead us for the next twenty years. And we know nothing about this guy. If if your church family can affirm you, that's that's where the heart of it's going to be. I remember a missionary, a pastor friend was. This missionary wanted to go to Romania, and the pastor says, "I won't affirm him." And the agency was ready to send him. He says, "Well, he's he's not faithful. He's not faithful to Sunday school. He's late to church. He's not committed to prayer group." He goes, "Why would I send him overseas when I can't even get him committed here?" I mean, he's he's one. You know, he's not even someone that, that's disciplined enough to, to to be reliable here. And you want me to send him somewhere else? No. If you could, you know, listen, if your family that knows you and they know you with all your warts and everything else and they affirm you, that's, that, that's what God is going to use to, uh, to do his work. Unfortunately, as agencies grew, they grew in influence they grew, and, and, and the church is slowly continuing to just relinquish that. So the church has taken a backseat to a lot of this, to, backseat simply meaning Hey, if you want to do this, sure, and go, and, and they've, they've taken little responsibility, and they've taken little um, involvement in that. So I want to make two distinctions here with the time that we have in the next seven, eight minutes. I want to make a distinction between parachurch and paramissions or parachurch and paramissional organizations. And I'll explain to you why, why that's important in, in the context of what we're doing. And then the other thing is ministry versus missions because there is a place for ministry. There is a place of service that is not missions per se. There are a lot of good things that good people are doing that, that are helpful, that are needy. They're feeding the poor. They're, they're clothing. They're coming. They're rescuing. There's a God's pit crew. There's all these things that are, that are helpful ministries, and I thank the Lord that people are willing to put resources and get behind it. But it's not confused that with missions, but that's ministry, and that's, that's commendable. So I, I do two things. One, there's parachurch, and there are paramissional organizations. And I make that distinction for that, for that purpose of of distinguishing because our expectations of one or the other will be different. So there is a proliferation of organizations that are parachurch organizations. They come alongside. Uh, they come alongside the church. Uh, they come alongside to to uh, um, help in all these different areas. You know, I, I put a whole host of things here. I mean, there's addiction recoveries, there's pro-life things, there's Christian schools, there's publishers. Now, that's one reason why our Christian school is under the church, is the ministry of the church, but there's a lot of, most schools are independent from their, from their churches that function independently. 
there's, there's so many things that are name, name, done in the name of Christ. Look at page top 39. I put down there 1,184,547 nonprofit charitable organizations in the United States. They raise a lot of money. Some of the top Christian nonprofits, top one would be Salvation Army, $3.7 billion, World Vision, Food for the Poor, Compassion International, Samaritan's Purse, Campus Crusade. I want to give this give a, a, a big picture. There are an awful lot of, of organizations that call themselves their parachurch organization in that they, they come alongside and they do, they do ministries that are good ministries. And they serve good purposes. Now, again, I'm a local church guy, so don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that uh, there's a rightful place for these, but always uh, the church being the primary thrust. But I put down these mega Christian organizations, nonprofits, are representative of, of the thousands of much smaller organizations that purpose to assist people in need and to do so in the name of Christ. So a desire to serve is a good thing. A desire to feed the poor is a good thing. A desire to clothe the poor is a good thing. All these things are, are commendable, and, and I've I got friends who wanted to serve and had a job opportunity on the mercy ships, uh, wanted to serve in that capacity. I mean, I, there's so many areas there. I just want to make the distinction between we as a church, when you come alongside a ministry, there are parachurch organizations that serve these purposes, and there are paramissional, which means they, these paramissional organizations are those who purpose to fulfill the Great Commission. That falls under a different responsibility for me, and I'll, I'll explain some of that here in, in our notes. First of all, just given the definition of ministry, mid-page 39, right? A uh, good definition of ministry is a ministry is, give, is about giving of ourselves and of our time, our talents, and our resources to bless and help others. The cry of the minister is someone's got to do it. It might as well be me. So there's thank the Lord for the many ministries that are out there that people are volunteering their time to, to helping him. Clearly, the hungry, the thirsty, uh, the naked, the sick, the persecuted are close to God's heart, the Lord's heart, and so should it be to believers and consequently the church. So that, that is a good thing. Um, but ministry versus missions. To bring clarity up and down, to bring clarity to the responsibility of the church in regards to missions, it would be helpful to make a distinction between ministry or parachurch organizations and missions. And I give two examples. I give two Two examples. One, a ministry's primary focus is humanitarian need, whereas missions is focused on the great commission of making disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching the whole counsel of, of God. In other words, what's a ministry's primary focus? How do you know what a primary focus is? If you have a ministry and their primary focus is humanitarian need, well, the primary focus means they do not exist without – they might do other things. It's, there's obviously great areas here. Not one ministry. They, they can do multiple things. But basically, they don't exist without that primary focus, and that's to clothe, to feed, to to help and assist. Um, and I give – the other thing is what is their primary source of income? Are they raising funds primarily for these humanitarian needs? So a ministry – and this is not a Christian ministry at all. What I'm doing the – re, the reason why I'm making this distinction for us is not at all to be critical of ministries. I hope that's not at all what's presented here. But I'm saying we need to understand there's a difference between ministry and missions. And not everything that's done in the name of Christ is missions. And how we approach that and how we support that as a church is going to make a difference too. I'll give you, I'll give you a brief example. Samaritan's Purse, mission statement, and team's mission statement. Samaritan Purse says is, is, Samaritan Purse is a non-denominational evangelical Christian organization. I'll give you their mission statement here. It says what? 
Samaria First has, has helped meet needs of people who are victims of war, poverty, natural disaster, disease. Samaritan's Purse is not missions. It's ministry. And I'm sure they do a lot of good and help a lot of people in time of need. Now, TEAM, which I'm not saying support them necessarily, but their mission statement says, our mission is to partner with the global church and sending disciples. See the responsibility they take already, right? Their, their responsibility is in sending disciples who make disciples and establish missional churches to the glory of God. So here's what I'm saying. Is that When we work with, when I want to be able to support a ministry or an organization or missions, one, is it a ministry? If it's a ministry, then my responsibility towards that ministry is going to be different than if it's missions. If they purpose, if their purpose is to fulfill the Great Commission, then I'm going to have a different expectation of them. And part of that is going to be, of course, how the church engages and uh, holds them accountable in, in other areas. So here is how I, I bring clarity to that for, for me. It says, I put down Samaritan's Purse as a parachurch organization that serves the church worldwide by providing spiritual and physical aid, while team is paramissional and that purpose is to fulfill the Great Commission. So the responsibility of a church in supporting parachurch organizations is limited to finding theological compatibility with the organization as a whole, ensuring there is fiscal integrity. So I'm giving you basic guidelines. What I'm saying is that basically if, you're gonna, if I'm going to support a ministry and I want to give my money towards ministry, uh, and, and I'm sure in a group this size some of you give money to different ministries. So what I want to see, I want to see first of all, is, is there theological congruency? I mean you wouldn't want to give to a ministry that is not theologically congruent. Uh, is there fiscal integrity, and uh, is what they're doing helps, or does it does it help uh, assessing what helps and and what hurts? Um, my I had a friend of mine who uh, did a lot of nonprofits in Africa, and he said, whenever whenever they when the funding ceased, he says half the projects that we were doing fell fell apart after years of investment in it. Why? He says because the local communities only upheld those as long as we were funding them, but they never. They never took ownership of them. It never was sustainable. It only became sustainable. In other words, it's the, the real ministries that were that was actually helping the communities were those that they were able to take ownership of and sustain it. And they only became visible the day that we cut off support, and those ministries continued with or without us. Those were ministries because they were building wells and doing other ministry things. It wasn't really church planting. But what he's saying, sometimes sometimes we we help ministries. And it's helpful, and we'll have questions a little bit later on to determine what helps and, and what hurts. So I think uh, well, I'm kind of out of time here because the next thing I wanted to, to discuss is sending church versus a, a supporting church. Uh, how do I distinguish between what it means to send versus how do we distinguish that with someone that we are, are supporting? So I think... That clock back there is pretty accurate. Yeah, so we're right, right past 6 o'clock. So I'm not going to try to, to embark on the next question, but it's important when we're talking about missions that, first of all, they'll bring clarity to the terms that we're using, the definitions that we're using, and what we're talking about. Because if we don't, if, if I can't make a distinction between what, what ministry is and what missions is, then my expectations of missions is going to be significantly different than my expectation of someone who's simply feeding the poor and involved in that capacity. If you're involved in missions and you're involved in filling the Great Commission, then my expectation then is that, one, the ultimate goal of the Great Commission is what? Make disciples. How are you making disciples? 
how and throughout the entire process are we making disciples? How do you make disciples when they, you make disciples when that when those individuals no longer depend on you, the missionary, but they become disciples of Christ and followers of Christ? Well, how are you working towards that end? Because ministry, you can be a long time. I had a friend who, who took over a church, had been established forty years, forty years ago. His father was a pastor of that church for twenty years as a missionary. Another missionary came in there for twenty years. Now he's going in there. 40 years later, continuing the work that his father started 40 years prior. Well, somewhere along the line, that, that congregation has not become disciples of Christ. They haven't. They're, they're, they're still just sustained by someone that's, that's preaching the word for them, but they haven't gone to that. So how are they being intentional about that? So when you understand the purpose of missions and the goal of missions and how do you, how do you get there, and that is, that is significant in how we approach What's ministry? What's missions? Uh, who are we sending versus who are we supporting? It's different for us is to send Michael is a different thing than us supporting the bakers. The bakers go into Kenya. I call their pastor. I call the missions guy. We, we discuss, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm supposed to get back with Shane tonight with the budget, to go over the budget. He asked me to go over the budget with him. And do I see any? Why? Because I'm trusting that church to have affirmed him. So I do due diligence. I go to Brian and say, hey, there's a budget for Kenya. What do you think about this budget? Anything missing here? But I trust that church to have affirmed that young couple and get behind them, and then we come alongside them and support them because we have a church that's congruent. Michael is our responsibility. So he's our baby, right? And so we have to make sure that he's affirmed, that he's ready, that he's prepared, that he's tested, that he's cared for. That's, he's about to, <laughs> so that's the difference between... Supporting and, and sending those two, those two ways of, of responsibility, and I discussed those two pieces. So when you get down in all the weeds of missions, there's, there's ultimately the beauty of it is, is seeing an individual grow in a church. It doesn't mean it has to be raised in a church, but submit themselves to the body of Christ, serve that body of Christ, love people. Love people and serve and disciple people. And, and, and the body get behind them and says, you know, we want, we want to be behind you. We're going to love you. We're going to support you. We're going to send you. We're going to help you raise support. We're going to find congruent churches that get behind you. And we're going to, we're going to send you to this ministry. We're going to come and, and be with you. And that's, that's exciting. And to do that, we need people that, that answer that call to ministry. We need a church that stands behind them, that affirms them, that tests them. And we need elders who take that task responsibly, responsibly as we do. Uh, and in doing that, fulfill the, the cause of the Great Commission. Not be sidetracked by, so, by the 100 and 100,000, 1,100,000 uh, ministry nonprofits out there that, that, that come and, and, and sometimes divert our attention away from fulfilling the Great Commission of making disciples for Christ. So... We'll, we'll dig into that just the next level next week. Appreciate your time. Let's go ahead and close in a, a word of prayer. Father, when we talk about, about missions, I, I know there are some in this room who, whose heart's desire is to serve you. They may not know exactly what that looks like, but they have a heart's desire to serve you. Lord, you might lay on their heart to to leave this congregation to be sent from here for the purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission, Lord. And I, I, I trust that in doing so that the, the church would 
not just stand behind him, but the church will fulfill its responsibility. Lord, I, what a beautiful thing to see when the church body answers a call in obedience, when individuals answers a call in obedience, and together, Lord, we fulfill the, the mission that's been given to us, and that we may do so faithfully until your return. So Lord, I thank you for our time this evening together, Lord. Bless uh, these and um, this coming week until we meet again next Sunday, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.